through his son, Jesus Christ. And then woven into this incredible letter are five warnings, five signs that they were falling away from the Lord. And what we have done throughout this series is we have committed to examine all five of these warnings so that we may be able to identify them that in the event that any of these signs begin to appear within our lives, we would not only be able to recognize them, but we wouldn't argue with the information. That we wouldn't say, well, I don't care what I feel. I know I have a great relationship with God and kind of dismiss the information. But instead, we would say, wait a minute. The very fact that these signs are showing up in my life are evidence that I'm not where I need to be with the Lord. And I'm not going to ignore this information that is provided. I'm going to repent. I am going to change my course and come back to the Lord with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength before it is too late. So, so far, we have already looked at four of these five warnings. We've looked at uh, drifting. We have looked at unbelief. We have looked at sluggishness. Last week we looked at rebellion. Today we turn our attention to the fifth and final warning. There has been one word that has been ringing, much like the sound system today, I don't know why, but uh, that has been ringing in my spirit for the better part of two years, maybe even more than two years now. And it's the word endure. Whenever I talk to believers, whenever I talk to them about what they're experiencing and what they're going through, and when I consider the times that we live in, I just always hear this word ringing in my heart, endure. And I believe that we need to resurrect the ancient art of endurance in these last days. Because unless you have truly mastered endurance, you are not going to spiritually survive the days that we are going to enter into. You know, I haven't said a whole lot about the election since it took place because I know it is still a very volatile subject. I know that there are some of you that are terrified with the results. I know that there are others of you that are uh, somewhat relieved at the results. But can I tell you that regardless to how you feel about the election, Nothing, spiritually speaking, has changed since the election. We needed a spiritual awakening before the election, and we need a spiritual awakening after the election. What this country needs is not going to be brought in by a Trump administration. It wouldn't have been brought in by a Clinton administration. What this nation needs cannot be brought by the Republicans or the Democrats or even the independents. It is going to come when God's people who are called by his name will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. Then God said, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land in Jesus' mighty name. So spiritually speaking, we are no better off today than we were before the election took place. We need to recognize that. We are still in a very dangerous position as believers in this last day. And we need to know how to endure to the very end. 
When it comes to the subject of endurance, the Bible literally explodes with information. I don't know if you've ever considered how much attention is given to the subject of endurance in the life of a believer, but it is almost on every page. The word endure actually comes from a a compound Greek word. It's made up of two Greek words. The first word means under, and the second means remain or abide. So it literally carries the idea of remaining or abiding even under something. Or being under pressure, I remain. Being under pressure, I will abide. It's the idea that regardless to what I am under right now, I will not be moved. And that is exactly what we as believers need in our walk with God. That no matter what we are under right now, we will not be moved, but we will remain steadfast in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Jesus told us in Matthew 24 that we would be uh, delivered up to tribulation, put to death and be hated by all uh, for his name's sake that many will fall away, betray, and hate one another, that false prophets will rise up and deceive many, that lawlessness would abound, and the love of many would grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who remains, even under all of that pressure, abiding in Christ to the very end, will be saved. In Mark chapter 4 and verse number 17, Jesus speaking of the various ways that men hear the word of the Lord, he says, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. These are individuals who did not really have the root of Christ bore in their heart. And so even though they were able to endure for a while, when tribulation and persecution really began to press upon them because of their commitment to the word of God, they immediately fell away. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 13 when he said, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. I love this particular portion of scripture in 2 Timothy 4 verses 3 and 5 because of the sharp contrast here. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will not remain under, they will not abide under sound biblical teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist fulfilling your ministry. Paul told Timothy, and Paul reached across 2,000 years to tell you and I that the days are coming when men and women will no longer want to endure, will no longer want to abide and submit to sound doctrine And they will begin to accumulate to themselves teachers who will accommodate their own desires. But we as believers are called to always endure no matter what comes our way and fulfill the ministry of Jesus Christ in our lives. 
And then he says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline that you have to remain or abide under this discipline of the Lord. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And this is a very important portion of scripture because the context of Hebrews chapter 12, which is where it comes from, is actually dealing with the subject of discipline and having to experience the discipline of the Lord. And what he's saying here is that regardless to whether it is a discipline for correction or it is a discipline for conditioning for the future use in the kingdom of God, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not to be moved by the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but remain and abide in Christ, knowing that it is that discipline that is preparing us for future use in the kingdom of Almighty God. And it's this final verse that actually sets the stage for our last warning which actually comes to us from Hebrews chapter 12. So if you want to, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. This is where, again, that final warning is going to come from. As you're turning there, let me quickly say this. I don't know how many of you will remember this, but about two years ago, during the spring, I did a series called The Grind. And that series actually came from Hebrews chapter 12. We did a whole series on Hebrews chapter 12. Because in that we talked about grinding out our faith throughout the challenges of life. And that it's in the challenging days, in the difficult days, that we have to learn to endure and press on because we are all susceptible in those challenging days of not only becoming wore out, but becoming indifferent and cold toward the things of God. I have walked long enough with the Lord to know that in those trying seasons, in those seasons that are very difficult and very challenging, and we do not always understand what is going on, not only am I personally susceptible to becoming weary and wearing out, if you will, but I'm also susceptible to becoming very indifferent and cold toward the sacred things of God. The things that are important, we begin to take them for granted and we no longer treat them with that respect and that honor and that dignity that they so rightly deserve. And this is exactly what was happening to these Christians that the author was writing to. And that is why the warning actually opens with these words in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. He was speaking to Christians who were wore out because of the persecution that they were under. And I think all of us can understand that. But can I just say here on those opening words, therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees that regardless to what you're going into, do not let the enemy steal your praise. Can I just hear an amen on that? 
You know, sometimes we go through it and the last thing we feel like doing is praising God. But when you stop praising God, you start losing the battle. Never let the enemy steal your praise, but keep worshiping your God through the storm in Jesus' name. They were being persecuted. They were being arrested. Their possessions were confiscated. Their families were being torn apart. They were being publicly humiliated. They were being imprisoned. They were being excommunicated from their family, from their friends, even from their synagogues of worship. It was a very, very stressful time for every one of them. They were being taxed on every single area of their life. They were being tested and tried physically, emotionally, spiritually, physically. In every area and arena of life, they were being tested. And as a direct result of that, they had lost their spiritual vitality. They had lost their spiritual strength. They were wearing out. They were becoming discouraged and burdened with the pressure of trying to maintain their walk with the Lord in the face of relentless conditions that they were subject to every day. And this had set the stage for the final warning. Here it is at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The middle part of that he says again, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. The final and fifth warning that is given as a sign that we are falling away from the Lord is indifference. Is when you no longer recognize the significance, the splendor, the majesty, and the wonder of the things of God. You know that you are falling away, that you are on a dangerous path, heading in a perilous direction, the moment that you no longer revere the holy things of God. When there is no longer a sense of the fear of God upon your heart and upon your mind. When there no longer is a sacredness about the things of God, you know that you are wandering away from him. The Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to had become so beaten down with life and persecution by this time that they simply began to become cold and indifferent for the things of God. That rather than being gripped with the seriousness of these matters being discussed, they were simply distracted by their pain and became indifferent toward them. And again, I would tell you that I am not pointing a finger to them because I don't know that I would do a whole lot better. you got to remember, these are men and women getting up every single morning not knowing what the day would bring. Getting up every morning not knowing if they would be alive to see the sunset. 
They didn't know if their families would be tore apart. They didn't know if they'd be in prison. They didn't know if they'd be publicly humiliated. They didn't know if their possessions would still be their own by the end of the day. They literally had no idea what would happen to them, and they could trace it all back to one thing, their commitment to follow Jesus Christ. You can imagine how hard it was to continue to revere the very things that were causing you pain and sorrow. And so there was this, this uh, apathy, this, uh, this indifference that came into their heart towards the things of God, even a contempt for them. And can I tell you that if we're not careful, this can happen to any one of us. None of us are immune to this. Throughout life, we can become so beaten down, we can become so broken, so shattered, or just wore out from life that we become cold and indifferent about the things of God. There is a place where we can become so indifferent because of the challenges of life that we no longer find God's grace amazing, the Bible inspirational, and the Holy Spirit a necessity within our lives. You know, the better part of my life has been spent pastoring men and women. And I have been with them in the good times and in the bad times. I've been with them as tears flowed down their cheek of joy because of the birth of a brand new baby. But I have been with them on the other extreme when there were tears of sorrow streaking down their cheek at the loss of a loved one. I have been with men and women as they've gone through divorce. And I have gone through pain and sorrow and sickness and struggles within their marriages and within their families and I have seen the best and the worst and I have seen godly men and women literally crumble in the midst of challenges in their life and if they're not careful even become hardened and indifferent towards the things of God and every one of us need to recognize that when life really is hard there is an opportunity not only to grow weary but even to become indifferent Because many of us can trace our sorrow right back to our commitment to going all the way with God. Some of you can look at your life and say things would be much easier in my relationships, in my family, even in my workplace if I wasn't committed to Christ. And it's easy to let the enemy get in there and cause you to feel contempt even towards the things of Almighty God. That was what was happening here. There was no longer a a holiness and a revere for the things of God. And as I see it, there were several contributing factors to this. First of all, it was a lack of accountability. A lack of accountability. You know, it's interesting. We said that last week, but here it is appearing again. Listen to what he says there. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Those first three words, see to it, are directed not to pastors, but to everyone in the faith community. He is saying it is your responsibility in this faith community to see to it that none of you in your ranks fails to obtain the grace of God. He recognizes that being part of a faith community is actually see to it that no one among us fails to obtain the grace of God. 
And it appears to me when you consider what we talked about last week in Hebrews chapter 10, that the genuine concern of the author is that the persistent lack of accountability within the community of faith there in Rome was contributing to many falling away from the grace of God. He was actually rebuking them, saying to them, you have failed in your responsibility to look out for one another and you're watching men and women walk away from the Lord and you won't say anything to them about it. And he says, from this moment on, you need to see to it that no one among you fails in obtaining the grace of God. Listen, whether we like it or not, the Bible stresses the fact that we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. Turn to your neighbor and say, I am your keeper. Come on. Now ask him how you're doing. (laughs) Wow. We are our brother's keeper. What he was saying to them is you've lost sight of what being a part of a church is all about. You think it's about coming in on Sunday and hearing the message preached, but it's more than that. It's developing relationships because you are accountable to one another. You see, even though each one is responsible for their own actions, their own choices, their own decisions, we are not responsible for whether someone ends up in heaven or hell. That is not it. There is to be, however, a cooperative submission to one another in order that we might do whatever is possible to hold each one accountable to the Lord. There is meant to be this relationship of mutual submission, me submitting to you, you submitting to me, looking out for one another, so that if at any point someone begins to fall away from the Lord, that there is enough transparency that we can come alongside each other and say, hey, wake up, come back. Because we all have those blind spots. And that lack of accountability will send someone walking away from the Lord. I think what's interesting here is when he says fails to obtain the grace of God, it literally means a falling away from something that was previously possessed. So these are believers who previously possessed the grace of God But through a lack of accountability, we're now falling away from it. Folks, I cannot stress this enough to you this morning. The first step in falling away from the Lord is willful withdrawal from the fellowship of faith. And that's why I get concerned when I see people not in church on a regular basis and showing up sporadically because I know that literally what they are doing is withdrawing themselves from any accountability because they've already determined in their mind that they're going to walk away from the Lord. The second contributing factor that I see here is the growth of a root of bitterness. The growth of a root of bitterness Notice that he says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. As I was studying that again this week, I, I, I just really was amazed at what it was saying. The idea that is being conveyed here is that of an individual who develops a bitter spirit. Something happens to them, someone says something to them or doesn't say anything to them, but something happens that causes trauma within their heart and as a result of that, they begin to develop a bitter spirit. They're resentful, they're angry, there may be even little hints of, of hatred within their heart, but that 
But that bitterness quickly turns to a root of bitterness where it's no longer a a spiritual matter, where it's no longer just something they're thinking about. It's taken root within their heart. And then as they work themselves through the community of faith, it literally produces a root of bitterness within the community of faith, which he says produces trouble or actually defiles the whole congregation. And so it is possible that some of the Christians were bitter with God for allowing the persecution in the first place. They were bitter with God because of how their possessions had been taken and why would God allow my possessions to be taken or, or that the persecution had caused their mother to be taken, their father to be taken. And why would God allow my mother and my father to be taken from me? And they were bitter towards God. But it could also be that they were even bitter and resentful toward other people within the congregation. Because they weren't experiencing the same pain that they were. And look at how I live compared to how they live. And it's not fair that they're not going through the same thing that I'm going through. Any way you slice it, there was bitterness that got into their heart because of what they were going through. And then it took root within their heart. And then they started going to other people within the community, spreading that root of bitterness. And now it had defiled the whole body there. Church, I cannot stress this enough either. Bitterness is fatal. Bitterness is lethal. You do not dare to play with bitterness and resentment and anger and hatred. No matter what has happened to you, you've got to run from that as far as you can because playing with unforgiveness is like playing with a viper. It's only a matter of time before you get stung. No one can play around with resentment and offense. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse number 10, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And if I read on, you would see how this offense literally serves as the pretext for falling away. That one of the contributing factors for the mass falling away is that they got offended, then they began to betray one another in gossip until hatred literally developed within their heart. Folks, I'm going to tell you this is no laughing matter. You cannot allow offense in your heart. And it grieves my heart today as a pastor when I see how many people, Christians, are getting offended over the simplest of things. And even over the most complicated things, they think nothing of getting bitter and resentful and even hateful and spiteful towards other people. Please don't allow it to happen. Whatever it takes, forgive, show mercy. Remember the mercy that God has shown you when you didn't deserve it and forgive in Jesus' mighty name. Don't play around with it. Why? Because Proverbs 18 and verse 19 says, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city and the contentions are like the bars of a castle. A brother that is offended is harder to win than a strong city. In other words, it's easier to take a strong, fortified city than it is to deliver someone who is given over to offense. Contentions are even stronger than the bars of a castle. If you continue to be a contentious, bitter soul, you'll never escape from it. 
And not only do you need to watch that that root of bitterness does not get into you, but you also need to be careful that you do not allow yourself to engage with anyone who brings that root of bitterness to you. When someone comes up to you and starts talking about another person that is not there, you need to stop them immediately and say, before you go any further, you need to know that I am going to go get the person you're talking about and bring them over here so that we can get this worked out because we are in the ministry of reconciliation, not in the ministry of gossip and division. And you're not going to put that root of bitterness in my heart so that every time I see that individual, I've got to work through a whole bunch of junk in order to look at them properly. Folks, please, we need to stop any offense from getting into this house in Jesus' name. And it begins with you for the glory and the honor of his name. Come on, give him praise in Jesus' name. But there was a third contributing factor, and it was the rise of secularism. The rise of secularism. Now, you may not see that readily here in the text, but trust me, it's there. Because he says there that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. That word unholy is interesting. Unholy would be absent from the holy. And there is no one holy but the Lord. Gives you an idea of what being unholy is. It is just operating outside of God. It is excluding God. It's translated in other versions of the Bible uh, as godless, uh, as profane. Many times when we think of profane, we think of profanity. And certainly words can be profane, but it's not really a good understanding of what profane means. Profane is, again, this idea of being godless. It is, it is excluding God from your life. So literally, it means that Esau was secular. I don't know if you've ever really studied what secular means or secularism. To be secular means attitudes, activities, or other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. That's what to be secular means. It means to have an attitude or an activity or other things in your life that have no religious or spiritual basis. There's no foundation of God there. So when we say a secular society, we are talking about a society that has excluded God from their activities has excluded God from their attitudes, from all other things. There is no spiritual basis. There is no foundation of Christ within any of their choices or decisions. They simply move by what they feel is right. Unholy, the the Greek word for unholy literally means outside the temple. That's what it means. Outside the temple. So the idea is, I'm going to make all of my choices and all of my decisions outside of the counsel of God. I am going to make all of my decisions outside of the counsel of Scripture. I'm going to only go by what feels right, what seems right to me. That is all it means to be a profane person. To be a godless person is just to exclude God from your decisions and your choices. And to live your life as you see fit. Boy, that brings it right down to our level. 
Because there are many of us in this room that never consider the word of God, that never consider the heart of God and the choices and the decisions that we make. And evidently what was happening is there were Christians who were allowing their choices and their decisions to be influenced by the pain they were experiencing in their persecution and felt justified in their behavior of walking away from the Lord. Because of the pain that they were enduring, because of the persecution that they were experiencing, they felt that they could now abandon God and lean on their own understanding. Folks, that can happen to any one of us here. Because I wonder how many people have dated individuals without ever once praying about it. They went completely on attraction and personality, but they never really sat down with God and say, what do you say, Lord? They never took that individual through the scriptures to make sure that they were not being unequally yoked together. Am I talking to anybody today? Listen, is that any less profane than the individual that is immoral and sleeps around? Because that one is just going by their instinct. And there are many of us that we call ourselves Christians, but we exclude God from every decision we make. How about is that, uh, that individual that says, you know what, I want to I wanna move away because I've been offered another job and I make more money and there's better schools there and there's lower taxes and it's certainly cheaper than living in New Jersey. Do you know what? That is as carnal as anyone that is away from God. When do we think that as believers, our choices need to be made by how much money we make and the schools that we live in? You need to be led by the Spirit of God. What is it that causes us to be so carnal? Oh, I'm preaching better than you probably want to hear right now. But we do this all the time, and it's just as carnal as a person that is walking far away from God because we're leaning on our own understanding. And it grieves the heart of God. And by the way, listen, I don't believe that we are the best church in the world. I don't even think that we are in the top 100. I'm not saying it to say this, but I want you to hear me. Do you think churches like this are on every corner in the United States of America? Do you believe that every church is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I have seen men and women leave when their kids were connected and plugged in. And then they go and they get to a dead church that isn't preaching the word of God. And they lose their kids. Can I tell you folks, we don't need to be profane men and women that leave God out of our choices and our decisions. We need to pray and seek the face of God and know that this is what he is saying to us in Jesus' name. He offers Esau as an illustration, and Esau was the epitome of the profane, of the unholy, because all of his choices and all of his decisions were made outside of any influence of God and the ways of God, and they were simply made based upon what seemed right to him, what felt right to him. He possessed no respect for what was holy, and it was reflected in his treatment of his birthright. My wife came downstairs today, and I was still going over my notes, and she said, is this going to be a long message? I said, yeah, I'm afraid it might be. Bear with me. I wish I could tell you this whole story. If you do not know the story of Esau and his birthright, I would encourage you to go home this afternoon and read it from Genesis 25. But can I quickly relate this to you? You know that Esau was a twin, His brother was Jacob. They were twins. 
But he was the firstborn, and the firstborn always received in that day the birthright. The birthright gave you unprecedented access to the family inheritance, but it was more spiritual than it was material. Because in the birthright, you would also be given the responsibility of leading your family spiritually. You would also be included in the messianic lineage. Your name would appear in that. The birthright would give you the privilege of being included in the lineage of the Messiah. So this was an incredible right. It was to be honored. It was holy. It was sacred. And it fell upon Esau because he was the firstborn of those twins. Now, many of you know that Esau became a mighty hunter. Jacob was a tent dweller, a homebody. And one day Esau had returned home after a long day of hunting. He was exhausted, the Bible says. Jacob had stayed behind and he had cooked up Esau's favorite stew. And as Esau comes towards the house, he's weary, he's hungry, he starts smelling that soup, and it awakens his hunger. It awakens his natural appetite. And he says, brother, can I have some of that soup? And he said, of course you can, in exchange for your birthright. Now let that just sink into you for a moment. A bowl of soup for a birthright. A bowl of soup that will satisfy you for an hour in exchange for a birthright that will sustain you the rest of your life. A bowl of soup that took an hour to prepare versus an inheritance that was generations in the making. And he has to make a choice. That's like comparing a matchbox to a Corvette. You know what I'm saying? It's just nothing in comparison. You're not even comparing apples to apples. I mean, these are light years apart. But Esau is so hardened by his hunger for food that he actually treats the birthright with contempt. And he says, as he reasons it out in his own mind, what good is a birthright if I die before I even have an opportunity to tap into it? Like he was really going to die. He was almost home. He could have waited until he got home. But what was more important to him in that moment is getting what he wanted. And he despised his birthright and sold it out for one single meal. Esau had absolutely no respect for the things of God. And I'm going to tell you that we as believers are in a dangerous place when we will sell out the great things of God for the sake of satisfying our desires. We live in a world that every day is putting before you the scent that awakens your appetites and your desires. And it grieves my heart today how many people would rather enjoy the pleasures of this world than hold on to the precious inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Lord and our Savior. Folks, we are heirs of the Father. We are joint heirs with the Son. We have a great inheritance in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt and, and thieves do not break in and steal. And how dare you and I sell it out for the things of this world. I thank God for the Word of God. I thank God that it is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I'm thankful I can hide its word in my heart that I may not sin against God. And it grieves my heart how pastors today are standing up in front of their congregations and say, listen, if you don't really want to believe the Bible, don't worry about it. You can still be a follower of Jesus Christ. My God, I wouldn't even know Jesus if I did not know the word of God. I wouldn't even know how to come to him if I hadn't seen it in the word of God. I thank God for the precious blood of Jesus Christ by which I am saved, that there is no other name given by which man may be saved but the name of Jesus. Can you imagine how it must grieve him when pastors will stand in a pulpit and say there are many ways to God except through Jesus Christ. It grieves the heart of God. I thank God I'm Pentecostal. Is there any Pentecostals in this house today? I thank God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is initially evidenced by the ability to speak in tongues as the Spirit of God gives us utterance. That I have a prayer language that when I don't know what to pray, He prays through me in Jesus' mighty name. Come on. I thank God for these precious things today. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when I consider how today, for the sake of sex and politically correctedness and entertainment and pleasure and friendship, that we have sold out the Word of God, that we've sold out salvation, that we have sold out the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need to repent and get back to the passion and purity of these things and say, we will not sell it out again in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, can somebody give God the praise in this house in Jesus' name? We've got to honor purity again and honor these things and treat them with dignity and respect. Are we any less profane than the most ungodly person when we as Christians know what we need from the word of God but we'll go days without reading it? Let us not be profane people. Let us be people that treat these things with dignity. So is there any cure to this indifference? He tells us right there where we opened up, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He says, you've got to choose the proper paths from this day forward. And, and what he's saying there is choose paths that promote healing and do not promote further injury. There are paths that you can choose that promote healing from all brokenness that you experience. And you've got to choose those paths. What are they? There's two paths that he says here that will promote healing. First is the path of peace. And this is peace with others. He says, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with who? Everyone. I'm not going to say it until I get a good one, okay? Strive with peace with everyone. everyone. You know what the Greek word for everyone means? Everyone, yeah. 
everyone. Enemies included. Those that hate you included. Those who irritate you included. Pursue peace with all of them. Remember who he's writing to. Men and women who are being persecuted. And he says, even among those who are persecuting, strive for peace. Strive means to run swiftly in order to catch. He says, I want you to get up every morning and run swiftly to make peace with everyone. I love what Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I love that. If possible, because it's not always possible. There are some people, they just want confrontation all the time. That's just the way they are. But if it's possible, as much as depends on you, God holds you responsible. He says, I don't care what they do. I'm holding you responsible for doing everything in your power to make peace with everyone. I want you to get up and make peace. I don't want you to be the instigators of pain and hurt. I want you to be the ones that are making peace. And you say, what on earth does this have to do with not being indifferent to the things of God? Even your enemies are created in the image of God and according to his likeness. And if you can't honor them, you certainly aren't going to honor anything else in God's kingdom. Oh, you see, we don't like that. Everybody was shouting here a few minutes ago. But when I get right down into where it, the rubber meets the road, nobody wants to hear it. The reality is I can't have any respect for the things of God if I can't respect men and women who are created in the image of God. Even if they're far away from God, even if they're persecuting me, they still need Jesus Christ. This is dealing with that whole offense issue. Because if you are making peace with everyone, it's impossible for you to carry offense in your heart. The second path, I wish I had more time with that. The second path is the path of holiness. And this is peace with God. This is the path of holiness. Remember, there are only two commandments that Jesus said we really need to concern ourselves with. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And this is it right up. It's right here again. We've made peace with man. Now we're making peace with God with holiness. With the same passion that we pursue peace, we pursue holiness. Holiness is not, who we, is not what we do. Holiness is who we are. Holiness is that I have separated myself from the world unto almighty God. What's interesting about holiness is that there is an instant or a positional holiness that takes place at the moment I'm saved, and there is a progressive or experiential holiness that I walk in throughout my days. And you see that contrast. I I just want to give you these scriptures quickly. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification. Sanctification and holiness are very similar. It's the act of separation to God by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That is positional holiness. At the moment I am saved, I am holy holy before the Lord. 
But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion or perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the idea is, I am born again by the Spirit, and as such, I am holy before the Lord, but I am pursuing holiness every day by cleansing myself from anything that would defile me and separate me from my God. You know, we don't talk about holiness anymore. I mean, if you've been saved for, let's say, 40 years or more, you remember, you would never go a Sunday without hearing somebody preaching on holiness and separation. And they may have taken it to an extreme, but you always heard the pastor thundering against the defilement in this world to come out and be separate, that there was something to be different about our lives in the way that we talked, in the way that we walked, in the way that we lived, in the way that we entertained ourselves. But you hear none of that today. Today, anything goes. Today, I can say whatever I want to say, watch whatever I want to watch, listen to whatever I want to listen to, and don't you dare judge me because I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by grace. As if grace, again, was a license for you to live any way you want to live. Nothing's holy anymore. Nothing's sacred anymore. We come into church with a casual attitude with Starbucks in hand and there is no there is no sense of reverence for the things of God. Folks, there are some things that are still holy and you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we should be holy as well in Jesus name. I was reminded of Isaiah the other day in his vision of the holiness of God. He says, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the very foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. My goodness, if the foundations of a house can be shaken by the holiness of God, how much more should the very foundations of this temple be shaken by the power of God? And as I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for I just can't imagine. He, you know, Isaiah has been following the Lord for a period of time up to this moment, but he's never really had a vision of God. And when he gets this first vision of Almighty God, he is so overwhelmed by his holiness and the fact that he's separate from this world that all of a sudden he saw himself for who he was. I am a man of unclean lips that is being influenced by a world of unclean lips and there is no separation. And then literally God separates him 
by purging his lips of those unclean words and making him a prophet unto Almighty God. Folks, listen to me. When we come into church, we should be exalting the holiness of Christ to the point where we say, I am undone, I am lost, and I'm still influenced by an unbelieving world so that we would come out of this world and be separate unto God and no longer be indifferent towards the great things of God, but have a reverence for them in Jesus' mighty name. Why is this so important? Why is it so important to carry that reverence in your heart? Look at what he says in verse 17. Continuing on with Esau, for you know that afterward, when he came to his senses, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The reason this is so important is because you can do irreparable damage to your life. Listen, folks. In no way, shape, or form am I suggesting, or do I believe the scripture is suggesting, that Esau could not be forgiven for what he had done. That doesn't seem to be the issue that is being dealt with here. It doesn't say that he couldn't be forgiven for what he had done. It's saying that he could not have restored to him what he had lost in that decision made in indifference. That once the birthright was given, there was no way for that to ever come back to him again. He made the choice. Could he be forgiven for the act? Absolutely. But the consequences were irreparable. Folks, listen to me. The issue is never can you be forgiven for what you've done. Can I be forgiven for what we've done? Absolutely. All of us can be forgiven for what we have done. How many of you are thankful? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not the issue. But forgiveness does not extend to consequences. Whatever a man sows, that is what he will also reap. And decisions that are made apart from God in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases can carry consequences you will have to live with the rest of your life. Every choice matters. Every decision carries a consequence. That's why we have to walk with a reverence for life a reverence for decisions, a reverence for marriage, a reverence for how we're going to live and conduct ourselves. Because every choice we make has consequences built in. And consequences have varying degrees of severity. And there are some consequences you'll have to live with the rest of your life. And you can be forgiven for what you've done, but you'll have to live with this. Please, Don't exclude God from your life. Honor him in Jesus' name. My prayer through this series is that you will recognize the warning signs and you won't argue with them, that you'll recognize when drifting begins to occur, when unbelief begins to occur, when sluggishness begins to take place in your life, when rebellion sneaks in, and now when indifference so that you will avoid the tragedies that will come if you avoid them.
With this I close. David said in Psalm 119 in verse 9 in the message, how can a young person live a clean life? By carefully reading the map of your word. I'm single-minded in pursuit of you. Don't let me miss the road signs you've posted. Precious Father, it's been a hard series. I believe it's been necessary. You have posted warning signs. May we not miss them. May we grow. Lord, even as we've talked about today, may we not be indifferent toward choices and decisions in the life that you have given to us, but may we treat them with great sacredness and recognize that with every choice, there is a consequence. Lord, I pray that we would choose the path of peace with everyone and the path of holiness with you so that, Lord, we may continue to make the right choices and decisions in this world that we live in. Guide us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen.